Uh, as we get started this morning, if you have your Bible handy, I want to invite you to open up to the book or letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time today, uh, or maybe the first time in a while, we are in, in week 43 now. Uh, this year-long series we've been doing for roughly 50 weeks called Read Scripture in 2021. And the, and the goal, the hope, is that we've been encouraged to be in God's Word daily. It's this series that has allowed us to explore much of the story of Scripture from cover to cover all throughout this year. And the goal is hopefully we step away from some of the trees and we see the, the beauty of the, the forest for what it is. So it's, it's a survey of the Bible kind of from 30,000 feet. That's what we've been talking about. That's what we've been doing. Uh, now, admittedly, if, if you're in my role, some weeks are, are much easier than other weeks. And some weeks are much harder to do simply because there can be so much that we cover in a given week sometimes. And so the temptation is sometimes we come across something and, and we're genuinely curious to really understand what, what the author is saying. We want to understand the, the nuance of this language. And so we zoom in and we zoom in and we zoom in and we try to unpack that one sentence or that one phrase or that one idea so that we can understand it because we don't want it to be confusing or surprising to us. And so we want to know, what, what is the author actually saying? Uh, and I can think of no better example of that temptation to really dig in and understand the nuance of what's happening here than this letter, 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians has it all. It has it all. Uh, it has some of the most controversial comments in Scripture as it pertains to things like, like sexuality and homosexuality and gender roles and expectations and lawsuits among believers and marriage and food laws and giving and traditions and so much more. And it also has some of the most beautiful and quotable comments in all of Scripture as it discusses things like love and the body of Christ and the resurrection. And so the question is, in one big idea, when we only have one week to cover it all, what, what do we make of this letter? What do we make of 1 Corinthians? What is this all about? And so that's what we're going to hopefully try to unpack in a, in a way that is, that is biblical and appropriate and hopefully succinct enough to kind of encapsulate it all into one big idea. And so as we get there, uh, we get a chance right now to spend some time in prayer and ask God's Holy Spirit to guide our time together today. And so I just want to invite you to join me in that. If you're able, uh, maybe consider standing or raising hands and let's just talk to God and ask him to guide this time together. Most holy and righteous and amazing God, we love you. And we love that we get to be together with one another, to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage each other in all the ways that I've been encouraged by people I've spoken to this morning. I pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged uh, by, by our presence and by our words and by your word. And so we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be in this place this morning, that you would do whatever work needs to be done to soften our, our eyes, to soften our hearts, and to help us understand what it is that, that you mean when you call us to be a holy people, when you call us to be set apart, when you call us to be your people. Father, give us the courage to set ourselves aside and to embrace the, the fullness of the truth that you have for us. Help us to see you more clearly, to love you more deeply, to need you more fully. And this is our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 
so it, it's no secret that, that conversations around a lot of the topics that I, I just mentioned a few moments ago can be, you know, controversial, to say the least, particularly in, in our neck of the woods here. And, and frankly, when, when you're in my role, um, or, or any number of other people who teach or lead, uh, it can be enticing sometimes just to try to avoid some of these conversations altogether. Uh, because oftentimes people's minds are, are pretty made up on a lot of these issues already, regardless of which side of these issues we tend to fall on, a lot of us have a really hard time kind of being open-minded and being malleable to some of, of these things. And so the stakes feel very, very high because many of these words intersect lots of our lives. They might intersect the lives of friends of ours. They might intersect the lives of family we have. They might intersect our, our very selves. And so one of the keys to better understanding this letter is, is to understand the people that it is written to, to, to understand who the Corinthians were and what this city of Corinth was really, really like. Now, before we get started on all of that, I want to say this. I want to give a quick shout out to Riley. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to meet Riley. He visited here a couple of Sundays, uh, and then he went off to Europe to go tour and, and enjoy himself. And uh, Maraf and I have been studying with Riley for, I don't know, a month or two now, doing Bible studies and so on. And uh, it just so happened that when he logged on to Zoom this week for our Bible study, he said, I'm, I'm sitting in Athens right now. I said, really? Athens? That's incredible. I said, this Sunday, we're going to be talking about Corinthians. You, sh you should go to Corinth. He said, well, you know, I was, I was actually planning on going to Thessalonica next, the Thessalonians. And uh, I said, okay, whatever. And a little bit later, I get a message from him going, okay, Mr. Parrish, you drive a hard bargain. I'm headed to Corinth. I said, all right, awesome. So uh, we very well may have someone who's sitting actually in Thessalonica right now watching this stream who was in Corinth a couple of days ago uh, who can appreciate a lot of this letter a little bit more deeply than we, than we can. And I will say, if you stick around to the end of service today, he actually sent over like 20 or 30 pictures that he took as he toured Corinth. So we'll have a slideshow at the very end of service after the prayer. You can kind of come up and see some of the stuff that we're talking about from a, a first-person perspective. Someone from Lake Merced is, is, has been there this week. So, kind of cool, kind of fun. Shout out to Riley. Um, the city of Corinth was a, a strategically, geographically significant city as it, as it served something as of a gateway to what is known as the Peloponnesian Peninsula. I don't know if you've heard of the Pelope Peloponnesian Peninsula. It's hard to say. Uh, you may have heard of the Peloponnesian War. But this peninsula was not a, a small piece of land. In fact, by my estimate, it was probably roughly the size of like Connecticut. But you go, oh, Connecticut's not a big state. And it's not, but it is bigger than like Puerto Rico. It's bigger than Jamaica. Like it's, it's a pretty sizable piece of land. And if it weren't for this very small little strip of land that's about three and a half miles wide, this Peloponnesian Peninsula would very much be an island. So you can imagine how integral this three and a half mile wide strip of land really is that connects the Pel Peloponnesian Peninsula to the rest of Greece. Because every traveler who was traveling from the peninsula, which included cities like Sparta, which we've heard of before, so anyone traveling from Sparta east to west or west to east would have to go across this little strip of land to get to places like Athens. And that's not all. Uh, mariners, people who worked in and lived in the shipping industry of the day, if they wanted to go from, say, like the Mediterranean Sea to the Ionian Sea, they had a choice. They could do one of two things. They could spend a 250-mile trip all the way around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, 
Or they figured out, we can just take our boat out of water and roll it three and a half miles across this little strip of land on like logs or rollers or something, and we can put it back in the water on the other side. And believe it or not, this is something they were actually doing. And so every traveler who wanted to travel east to west crossed this little piece of land. Every traveler who wanted to go north to south by water traveled across this piece of land. And so any guesses as to what city might be sitting on this little piece of land? Corinth, right? So you can imagine how significant a city Corinth really, really was. In fact, it was significant enough that it was actually a capital within the Roman Empire, which means it was flush with lots of, of Roman culture and tradition, lots of Greek culture and tradition, lots of Jewish culture and tradition. But the focal point in all of Corinth was this Greek temple to the goddess Aphrodite. In, in Roman mythology, you would know her as Venus. And so Venus, or Aphrodite, as you may know, was the, the goddess associated with things like love and lust and beauty and passion and pleasure and procreation. And so when we read some of the historical writings that we have about the city of Corinth, we read stuff like this Greek philosopher and historian Strabo. This is what he said about this temple. He said, The temple of Aphrodite was so rich that it owned more than a thousand temple slaves, prostitutes, whom both men and women had dedicated to the goddess. And therefore, it was also on account of these women that the city was crowded with people and grew rich. Corinthos, which is the, the Greek version of that word, there on account of the multitude of prostitutes who were sacred to Aphrodite, outsiders vacationed in great numbers and kept holiday. And the merchants and soldiers who went there squandered all their money so that the following proverb arose in reference to them. Not for every man is the voyage to Corinthos. Corinth. So, what was Corinth? Well, it was a place where people traveled. It was a place where people vacationed, where they could live up and experience some of their, their most worldly and, and lusty desires, a place that would make you go broke in your pursuit of pleasure, a place that had the potential to absolutely ruin you. Does that sound like any cities that you know of in our world today? Well, there are a number of them, yes, uh, but maybe the one that you're thinking of, if it's the same one that I'm thinking of, uh, is pretty familiar to us. It's just a few hundred miles away. I happen to root for the football team that's playing right now that... that Calls that city home, Las Vegas, right? In fact, even Las Vegas has its own little proverb too. How many of you know it? What happens in Vegas stays in We all know this stuff. It's interesting. Now, Vegas is different than Corinth in one key way. It, it has, it's nowhere near water. <laughs> no, no water around Vegas at all. But can you think of any other cities in the U.S. that might be surrounded by water on almost all sides that lives in some degree of infamy for the seedy, sexually charged underbelly of its culture. Any suggestions there? I can think of one. And it just so happens that we're sitting in it right now. Right? Um, so I think to understand Corinth is a little bit like understanding Vegas or San Francisco. And so what kinds of conversations need to happen in those places that maybe are unique to those places? Well, lots of conversations, but it would be irresponsible to not acknowledge head-on that sexuality 
is a significant part of people's lives, both here and there, both then and now. I was on social media this week, and I saw a clip um, of Elvis Presley. And it was when he made his first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I was reminded as I looked at this clip that the FCC had warned the Ed Sullivan Show, whatever you do, do not show anything from the waist down, or you will face severe fines, to which the, FC, or to which the Ed Sullivan Show went ahead and zoomed out and, and showed everything anyway. But, but it was all very sexual in their eyes, right? It was sexual, it was racy, it was too inappropriate for television. And so I bring that up because that's kind of the shadow that many of us have grown up in. It's a shadow that suggests that only in recent years have we as a people become more sexualized as a people. That, that back in the good old days, people were, to borrow Michael's term, the old din days, uh, only then were, were people pure and conservative and chaste. But one quick study in, in Corinthians is enough to remind us that what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again, that there is nothing new under the sun. In other words, this highly sexualized culture is not new to us, nor are cities like Bangkok or Vegas or, or Amsterdam, right? And yet, nevertheless, the gospel is still very much needed in those places. And the people... The people in those places very much need some reminders and some corrections about the ways in which the prevailing thinking of the world around them and us aren't always in alignment with God's desires for the ways that they live their lives or the ways in which we live our lives. But if you think Paul looks at a place like Corinth and thinks to himself, man, these people are awful, unsavable, wretched people, think again. That's not what Paul is looking at or thinking when he's looking at Corinth. He planted this church. He spent 18 months living in Corinth, the second longest amount of time he spent in any city. He knows these people, and he loves these people deeply. And so it's with that reality firmly in view that we engage Paul's letter. Now, if you know 1 Corinthians well, and I'm guessing a lot of us here have spent some time in 1 Corinthians it's, it's tempting to read what Paul has to say as sort of a laundry list of corrections, where, where Paul is saying, okay, you're doing this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, knock it off. That's how we're tempted to read it sometimes. But as I sat down this week and, and not only studied this letter, but slowly and methodically began to kind of write down an outline and sit with Paul's thinking and his logic, trying to understand how one thought leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another, you quickly begin to realize this isn't a laundry list of, of subjects at all. In fact, I'm convinced that there's a structure to this entire letter that is, that is something like a chiasm. I'll get to what that is in just a moment. But a chiasm is something that we see all throughout Scripture. It's a literary tool that is all throughout the Bible. And usually it takes place over much smaller blocks of text. It might take place over a chapter. It might take place over 10 or 12 verses in the Bible. But it's rare that you see it take place over a book or over a dozen chapters. But that's exactly what I think is, is happening here in Paul's letter. So what is it? Well, a chiasm, if we can get that slide up, a chiasm is a pattern of, of thought where every point has a symmetrical counterpoint. And if you don't know what I'm saying, let me illustrate it this way. You, you might have point A. So you're trying to make a point, you're writing, you, you list point A first. But you're not going to get to the counterpoint to point A right away. In fact, because the point came first, 
when does the counterpoint come? Well, if it's symmetrical, it comes last. And so point B, the second point, would come second to last. And point C, the third point, would come third to last, and so on. And so it kind of forms this wedge. Can you picture what I'm talking about in your mind? And so it reminds me of like those, those Russian nesting dolls. You guys ever have those or, or play with those Russian? We had a set of these when I was a kid that I liked to play with. And so you'd open up one doll, and inside, what, what was there? Another doll. And so you'd take that out, and you'd open it up, and what was there? Another doll, and you keep going, you keep going. And before you know it, you're eight, nine, ten wooden dolls deep into this, this layered nest of, of dolls. And when, when you've deconstructed everything, what do you do? You kind of look at it all, and then you, you start putting it all back together again. But this time you do it with a much better understanding of the whole. You understand what's inside. You understand how each piece fits with the other pieces. And so it's this lesson in, in deconstruction and reconstruction, which I think is a very trendy term in like the culinary world right now, right? What do you do with a lasagna? Well, you deconstruct the lasagna, you understand all of its parts, and then maybe you, re you reimagine how to put all those pieces back together again with some familiar flavors, but, but this time in a new way, right? Culinary world loves deconstructing and reconstructing things. And so I think what Paul is doing in this letter is, is he's borrowing a lot of that framework as he develops his line of thinking and teaching. And so I'll try to illustrate what I mean. So as 1 Corinthians begins, it starts with a very familiar opening that we see in, in most of Paul's epistles, right? There's, there's kind of the, the welcome. I, I, Paul, called him to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and so on. There's greetings. And then about in verse 10, his, his thesis begins to kind of be clarified. This is what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. There are some times throughout this morning where I might encourage you to highlight something or circle something. If you have a pen handy, highlight perfectly united in mind and thought. That's Paul's goal. That's what he's thinking about here. And so what Paul is getting ready to say to them is that there's, there's, I'm hearing whispers. There's a word on the streets that they've begun to fracture a little bit as a united body of believers. Pay special attention to that word body. We're going to come back to that throughout this morning. So they've begun to argue. They've begun to quarrel over which apostle they're following. So some are saying, well, I follow uh, Paul, others Apollos, others Cephas, others are even saying, well, I, I follow Christ. And this is a problem, primarily because they've, they've lost sight of, of who and what really matters. Who are they supposed to be following? Help me out, church. Christ, right? Absolutely. Because Paul's saying it, only Jesus was the one who was crucified, and it was the, 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 the crucifixion, he says, may seem like foolishness, to the world around you, but in reality, he says, it is the very power of God. And so he's going to quote Isaiah the prophet here. And what Isaiah said was, I will destroy, this is kind of God talking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the quote-unquote intelligent, I will frustrate. And so Paul acknowledges that, that all the, the wise people, all the smart people who live in their city, who may be in their ears filling them with all kinds of ideas. And he reminds them, he says, guys, I want you to remember, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. 
The weakness of God, he says, is, is stronger than human strength. It's like, guys, I, I know what you want to believe. I know what you're hearing. I know you want to believe all of the stuff around you, that everything you're hearing, everything you're seeing. But I want you to remember one thing. I want you to remember who is wiser. I want you to remember who is stronger. And so the reality, according to Paul, is that these believers are not mature in their faith. They may think they are, but they're not mature yet. Paul tells them he's only given them milk. He's not given them solid food yet because they're not ready for it. They're still infants in their faith. And that's proved by the fact that they're still quarreling about silly things like who they follow when they should know that this is Christ. That's who you follow. And so Paul accuses them not only of being wrong, but of being arrogant. He says, you guys are being arrogant. You have an exaggerated sense of your own understanding. And so he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, wise by the standards of the people around you in Corinth, then by all means you should become fools to them so that you may become actually wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. He's, like, he's saying, like, you, you could fit in. You, you could try to live like the rest of the Corinthian people live. You can do what they do. You can value what they value. But when God looks at all of that stuff, what does he see? Foolishness. That's what he sees. And so as chapter 5 begins, Paul turns his attention to their sexual ethic. And this is where I want you to realize that, that much of the arguments that come next are not a linear list, but they are arguments nested inside of arguments nested inside of arguments. Because Paul's main concern throughout his entire letter is going to be, in some sense, physical. It's going to pertain to the human body. And so the prevailing notion in Corinth, what, what the people of their day were, were understanding and talking about, and, and the rest of the Greek world, through people like Plato and so on, was that the, the tangible, the physical, the flesh and blood, the things that you could touch and see, were in some sense bad or worthless or distracting because the flesh and blood, the tangible, was not eternal in the same way that the soul was eternal. The flesh becomes an obstacle to what we can attain without it. This is Platonic thinking. And so Paul writes, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm hearing all of these reports about sexual immorality among you, and, and not only that, it's, it's worse than the kind of sexual immorality that's taking place in the city outside of the church. He said that one guy is sleeping with his stepmom, and you guys are proud of him for it. That's a problem. And so Paul says, your, your boasting is not good. He says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? It works its way all the way throughout. And so he says, get rid of that old yeast so that you may become unleavened bread as you really are. New unleavened bread. And so Paul wants them to remember. He says, you guys are, you guys are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you need to get rid of some of your old ways of living, your old ways of thinking. Get rid of the old yeast, yeast that was full of things like malice and wickedness. He says, get rid of that stuff. 
In fact, Paul says he wrote previously to them. And we actually don't have this letter. So 1 Corinthians is actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians is the third letter and so on. But there was some letter we don't have. And he says, I previously wrote to you that you shouldn't even associate with sexually immoral or greedy or idolatrous people. But he clarifies something here, and this is important. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, when I wrote that, I was not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. He says, if that were the case, you would have to leave this world. Good luck finding anybody. He says, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ and yet is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. He says, don't even eat with people like that. And so what's Paul saying? Well, interestingly enough, his issue isn't with unbelievers and their practices. Who's his issue with? It's with believers and their practices. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? He says, are you not to judge those inside the church? He's like, what happens outside the church? That's God's business. God's going to judge those people. He says, as for the people among you, the people who are not living the way they should, he says, expel the wicked person from among you. So, So Paul isn't looking at everybody in Corinth here, is he? He's looking at a very specific group of people. He's looking at the Christians who are doing crazy stuff, and he's saying, hey, if, if those quote-unquote Christians want to behave like that, don't have anything to do with them. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians as a laundry list, it seems like Paul is getting ready to just change subjects here. He goes off into a new tangent. Now he's talking about lawsuits among believers. But if you really sit with what he's saying, that's not exactly what he's doing here. He's, he's still talking about judgment. He's still talking about the ways in which we judge one another. And he's using lawsuits as an illustration of a bigger point that he's making with an argument to help them understand the sexual ethic inside the church versus the sexual ethic outside of the church. And so he's saying something kind of like this. This is in my own words. That in the same way that it doesn't make sense for two believers who are arguing about a a judgment or or justice among one another, in the same way it doesn't make sense for them to go outside of the church into the secular courts and seek counsel, seek judgment on on their dispute when there's perfectly good people inside the church who could do that for you. Well, it doesn't make sense, he says, for those who are inside the church to go around passing judgment on all of the people who are living outside of the church. Those two things don't make sense. They're two different worlds. And so nevertheless, Paul says, that's exactly what's happening. You guys aren't keeping things inside the church like you're supposed to. You're going to the court. You're suing each other in secular courts. He says that stuff shouldn't happen. Why? What was the opening thesis of 1 Corinthians? It's about unity, right? I want you to be united to one another. And so Paul makes a statement here, and it's not one that a lot of people in our world today will like, particularly in our, in our neck of the woods here. But if all we had to do was listen to the stuff that we liked, this wouldn't really be about faith. And it wouldn't be so hard. The reality is our, our faith will often come 
into conflict and into friction with some of our own personal desires and instincts. And so just like in Corinth, it will oppose much of the prevailing wisdom of the world around us. And so if we let what we want to be true overrule what we may understand God's word to be saying is truth, then we are dangerously, dangerously close to worshiping a God that is made in our own image. It's, it's never hard to worship a God who agrees with me on everything, right? We can always do that. That's, that's not a problem at all. That kind of God seems cool. I don't have to think critically about anything. I don't have to be humbled by anything. I don't have to change anything. We're in lockstep on everything. But Paul seems to acknowledge that there's an incongruence. There's an issue. There's a difference between a godly sexual ethic and a Corinthian uh, sexual ethic, the, the sexual ethic outside of the church. And he says the two should not look the same. They should not be the same. The sexual ethic of the church should not look like the one that you see on the streets. And so he says, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so again, Paul's words here are targeted at who? They're targeted at believers. But there's an important incompatibility between the, the sexual ethic of a city that's inflamed by, by lust with prostitutes at this temple of Aphrodite and the church. One way is of God, Paul's saying, and, and one way is not. And so some of you read that, some of you hear me say that, and you're thinking to yourself, yes, I agree. He said the truth. And then there are other people, I guarantee, sitting here right now going, man, that's, that's really, really tough to hear and read, Josh. I don't know that I like that one bit. And I get it. I get it. I do. This is not me saying these things. And this is not also a sufficiently deep dive into some of these things in Scripture. But it is what Paul seems to be saying. And so I want to say this. We should not read these words and single out one part of what Paul is saying here to the exclusion of everything else that he's saying all around it. Because sexual immorality continues to be a huge problem within the church. And it has for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And it looks like, and it manifests itself in a whole lot of different ways. But I would say this, that the single most prevalent issue in the world today, in our church, is, is not men being with men. It's men and women alike, often in the secrecy of their own bedrooms and bathrooms with their computers and their tablets and their phones, able to look at and consume everything that the world has to offer and nobody has to know a thing about it. Over 90% of men are fighting that battle and 50% of women 
are fighting that battle. Paul says sexually immoral is what you guys were. But it's not who you should be any longer because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were made right through Christ Jesus. And so Paul begins to anticipate their, their argumentation. He, he, he begins to anticipate how they're going to refute him. He says, well, you guys say, I have the right to do anything. He says, yeah, but not everything is beneficial. Well, I have the right to do anything. Yeah, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. So what he's saying is your sexuality should not master you. It doesn't define you. That's what Paul's saying. Everybody's so worried about their rights. Do we have a right to, to do this or that or the other? Okay, you have that right. But who does it benefit? He says, well, you guys say food, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. The implication is, you know, the body is meant for sex and sex for the body. Paul says, yeah, and, and God will destroy them both, one and the other. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. If you're going to underline anything today, it's that line right there. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. If you understand that, you're going to understand everything else that comes in 1 Corinthians. This is a direct affront to Corinthian wisdom of the day. Corinthian wisdom which said that the body is nothing. It's bad. It's, it's passing away. Paul says, no, 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 no. The body is something. It absolutely is something. The body matters, and it's not for you. It's not for you. It's for the Lord. That's what the body is for. It's for the Lord. And so while I wish we had all the time in the world to just keep peeling back every layer of this onion, and there's a lot of layers here, Paul begins to, to use like the sexual ethic to further uh, unpack what godly marriage looks like. That's sort of the next layer. What does that look like? What does it look like to be a godly widow or a godly virgin or, or godly with a spouse who is an unbeliever? What does that dynamic look like? And so in all of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives two very specific imperatives or two very specific commands for the Corinthian church to take seriously. And their first one is, is their sexual ethic. He says one word, one imperative, flee. He says flee from sexual immorality. You should be getting images of, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife here at the end of, of, of Genesis. Flee. Run away from sexual immorality. Why? He says all other sins a person commits are outside of the body. You can, you can steal, you can murder, you can do all that stuff. None of that is to your body. But he says whoever sins sexually is sinning against their very own body. And do you not know that your bodies, he says, are temples of the Holy Spirit of God? A more accurate way of saying that would be, do you not know that y'all are a temple collectively for the Spirit? of God who is in you and whom you have received from God. He says, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The body matters. Again, who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who received the Holy Spirit, who were saved, 
who were redeemed, who were bought back. This isn't for everyone. This is for those who want to be counted with Christ. He says there's a, sexual, a healthy sexual ethic that is given as a gift from God within a marriage. And there's an unhealthy one that leads toward destruction. And he says the two do not look alike. They don't look alike. Now I mentioned a chiasm, which means there's a counterpoint coming, right? There's a parallel thought. And the counterpoint is mirrored uh, later on in 1 Corinthians, and it also deals with physical, but it deals with food and idols. Because what do we have in Corinth? We have, we have all of these, these pagan deities and food that is being sacrificed to them, and so the question that Paul is answering is like, okay, can we just engage at least in what the community is doing? They're having parties and festivals, they're eating food. We know we're not worshiping their gods. Can we just enjoy the good food with them? And Paul says, okay, hold on. Let's go back and look at your ancestors and what they were doing when they were making sacrifices at the temple. He says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? When they were there, were they not participating in the altar? He says, do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no. But the sacrifices of pagans, he says, are being offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You can't have a, a part in both the Lord's table and their table. He says, are, are, do we, have we learned nothing? Are we trying to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Think back to the Exodus and, and the golden calf, right? And so how do they respond in, in Paul's narrative? Well, Paul anticipates them saying the exact same thing they talked about with their sexual ethic. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say. Again, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say. But everything is not constructive. So Paul says, look, don't split hairs about this. But if you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the food that you're eating right now was offered to some false god, he says, don't just, don't just eat like it doesn't matter because what we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies matters. And so he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, make sure that what you're doing is for the glory of God. And so this is where the other imperative, the, the mirrored, the counterpoint, if you will, imperative of Paul comes in. He says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. These are the only two places you see this language in 1 Corinthians. I know this is a lot. And there, there's obviously much, much more that can be said in Paul's letter. But if there was one theme that sort of weaves its way throughout Paul's letter to Corinth, particularly in chapters 5 through 10, the, kind of the, the core, the middle of the letter, it is Paul's insistence that the physical matters. What we do with our bodies matters. The flesh matters. He's trying to make sure they understand that. And so it's through that lens that we begin to unpack the most lovely parts, the most digestible parts of 1 Corinthians. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, if bodies are sacred, and we understand that, if they're holy, and we understand that, if they matter, if Paul has established that in us as the reader, then Paul is able to revisit his opening concern, which was their unity. Their unity as a community of believers and so he wants them to see and understand 
that God has gifted each of them through the Holy Spirit in unique and powerful ways, which is something we also talked about last week in Romans. And so he says, this is beginning in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, he says, guys, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To, to one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, uh, knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between the Spirits and so on. He says all of these are the work of the one and same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one of us as he determines. And so what do you begin to do if all of us within the church are gifted uniquely like this, with gifts? Well, what do you form? Anybody guess? Say body. You form a body. He says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of many parts, of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a foot, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And so if the whole body were an eye, he says, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, he says, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And so what does this corporate body do with this new reality and this new truth in place? He says they love. That's what they do. That one body loves, and here's what it looks like. The only time I read this usually is in, in a wedding. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It, it, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. He says, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In short, what does he say? Love never what? Love never fails. Every step of the way in 1 Corinthians, Paul is deconstructing an unhealthy body image where flesh supposedly means nothing, one that is disjointed and disconnected and self-seeking and worried about personal rights and worried about personal pleasures, and then he's reconstructing a healthy body image, one that reminds them that their body is only complete. It is only functional with one another doing their part. And it's within that corporate display of unity that God's Holy Spirit dwells and moves. And so if, if I were to sum up 1 Corinthians in one, in one phrase or one set of words, it's this. My flesh is not my body. We are. My flesh is not my body. We are. 
What do I mean? Well, Paul's very clear. He says things like, I am not my own. He says, you were bought at a price. He says that the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so Paul is painting this picture that reminds us that while flesh is not bad in all the ways that the pagan Corinthians thought the flesh was bad, he says it is also not ours. We don't own it because Christ paid the ultimate price to redeem us, to buy us back. And so we are no longer our own people. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, what does he call us? He says we are Christ's slaves. There's language you don't hear every day in the church. You're a slave of Christ. And sort of kind of reminds me of when we sold our house a few years ago in Hayward. We had, we had negotiated this rent back where we would continue to live in the house for a month or so, uh, paying rent and so on, but, but we didn't own it anymore. And so it was this weird dynamic because it felt like my house. It looked like my house. It smelled like my house. It was furnished like my house. But all of a sudden, no longer was it my house because I, I had sold it. And so it wasn't mine to just go and do whatever I wanted with it any longer. I, I had sold it to somebody else. And I think this has a lot of implications for, for us in 1 Corinthians and who we are in Christ in ways that, that it just doesn't for those who aren't in Christ. Because if you haven't sold your house, you still own it, you're free to do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, when, when judgment comes, you, you also won't receive Christ because he hasn't bought you back. You're still a slave, but you're enslaved to something else. You're enslaved to sin and death rather than Christ. But... Paul says, if you have sold your house, it's no longer yours, which means you're, you're something more like a renter. And what you do with what you are living in, renting back, so to speak, matters. How you engage sexually matters. How you engage drugs matters. How you engage alcohol matters. How you engage food matters. How you engage exercise matters. All of that stuff matters. And you can see Paul's thinking in this, like in 1 Corinthians 9, he uses that, that language about like beating his body into submission and, and running in such a way as to win the prize. There's this training. Everything you do with your body matters. And so my flesh is not my body, church. We are. We are my body. It's not like in Christ we don't have a body any longer, but our sense of body changes from flesh and blood on my bones and all of the fleeting troubles and diseases and heartache that comes with that, as well as all the pleasures that come with it, to a body that is comprised of y'all. And so I may be a hand, and you may be a leg, and you may be a foot, and you may be a heart, and eyes, and ears, and knees, and ankles, and all sorts of stuff, right? Maybe all of those things. But the body I belong to is not my own, it's comprised of all of us working together in unity to further the cause and the love of Christ Jesus in this world. My flesh is not my body. We are. We are. And sometimes there are aspects of that that we may not like. There are aspects of that that we may not love. There are aspects of that that we may not want to agree with. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church because certainly there were some things that they were doing that they didn't agree with. But that's why Paul is correcting them. Because as long as they're still infants 
drinking spiritual milk, or worse yet, you know, totally unbelieving. The church shouldn't associate those who are trying to live in two different worlds. He, he, to borrow a term from Revelation, that's, that's lukewarm faith. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. And so the reality is, either you are the master of your body, or he is. Or he is. And both are your choice, and both have implications. And so my prayer is that you embrace the greater body that is the body of Christ, his church, and not forsake it in favor of a lesser identity that is ruled by the, the urges and desires of our flesh. My flesh is not my body. We are. We are. And so this morning as we wrap up, if there's anybody here who's going, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of kind of living in subjugation to my body, and I'm, I'm ready to belong to something greater than that, something that's bigger than me, something that transcends life itself, then I want to invite you to that. We're going to stand. We're going to sing here in a moment. And if you would like to receive Christ, if you'd like to receive his Holy Spirit, if you'd like to receive those gifts and become part of one body, then we invite you. Let's stand. Let's sing. If you're joining us online, you can email me at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. Let's stand. Let's sing praises to God as one body, church.